0: Uh, Man, that uh, the song, not the last one we sang, Pastor Matt, but the one before that, um, Your Great Name, I couldn't, I just got so choked up I couldn't sing. I don't know about you guys, but what a beautiful name the name of Christ is. It's uh, a beautiful name indeed. Okay, so I think I'm ready. Are y'all ready? How about we pray? Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to praise your great name this morning. Indeed it is that, it's great. And I pray that each person's heart this morning is to have a desire to bring glory to you. As we saw a few weeks back in John fifteen eight, our Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Use our lives, Lord, in such a way to bring much glory to the only true and living God in these short lives that we have. And so as we look into your word this morning, give us wisdom to hear and intent for application of life. And we ask and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we're in the book of James, so if you brought your copy of God's word with you, James chapter two. We're going to be looking at verses 21 down through verse 26. I've titled this sermon this morning, A Portfolio of Faith, in that we're going to be looking at a couple of snapshots, a couple of pictures of some individuals who are the examples by which James sets out to demonstrate and illustrate the doctrine that he has been teaching thus far in chapter two. Now, perhaps we've heard uh, along the way in life, that the epistle of James was of a certain consternation for one Martin Luther who uh, referred to the book as a right strawy epistle now that 's some language that we don 't often use i 've never called anything strawy in my life at least i don 't think I have except i 've asked for straws before at the at, you know at restaurants. but I think the idea here is that it 's a very difficult book theologically to handle it 's a It's a difficult book, Luther was reported to have said, especially chapter two, the chapter that we are in. So I thought it might be good to open uh, this morning with a quote from Martin Luther, which comes from a preface in his uh, commentary to the book of Romans. And in this preface, it seems to me that he has perfectly captured the basic message, the essence of what James is teaching in chapter two, the the reality, the truth, that faith works, that faith without works is dead. Listen to this. He said, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words, about faith and good works. (laughs) Isn't that good? I think perhaps Luther may have got a handle on what James was talking about. What do you think? So this morning we're gonna watch as James supplies support to this claim that faith without works is dead, that a genuine saving faith apart from works is a non-salvific faith. So this morning from verses 21 to 26, we're going to see James use the lives of two people, Abraham and Rahab, both of whom possessed a faith that worked, a faith in God that was then seen doing deeds in keeping with genuine repentance and faith. As as, as Luther said, here he said, but before the question is asked, I love that. It has already done this. I think we're going to see that played out very well in these two lives of both Abraham and Rahab. So take a look at verse 21. He says, but someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Excuse me, this is verse 18, not 21, but someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, when we read this passage, we see that James sets out to show us something, to show us that faith has a particular image, that faith looks a particular way. This is why he says, I will show you. And again, the two lives that he's going to be showing us this morning are two lives that are indeed going to be showing us that. In verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Now, when we read this, we must remind ourselves that James is not dealing with the means of salvation, but rather with its outcome, the evidence of genuine saving faith. It's important to understand the the usage of the Greek term dikaio, which is the word that's used for justified. The Greek word dikaio is used for justified, and it's the act of clearing someone of transgression, to acquit, to set free, to remove guilt, acquittal. And here in verse 21, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? The usage of dikaio, of justification here, is not the usage that we most oftentimes think of when we see that usage with the apostle Paul as we see here in verse 21. I'm going to get this down. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? We are not intended to look at this passage and say that this is how our father Abraham was saved, according to works. When we see this same word to over here in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being what? Here it is again, dikio justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. In this context, dikio means that an, individual, an individual's guilt before God has been acquitted. It's been removed. They've been set free. They're declared not guilty. It's that more of that judicial God declaring someone righteous, dikio. They've been justified because of faith in Jesus Christ alone. And we see that clearly here in Romans 3.23 and 3.24, being justified, being found not guilty before the court of heaven because of what Christ has done. And all they did was come to him. They came to him. They trusted in him. They put their faith in him. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. But James, over here in... Man, I'm getting all out of whack here. In verse 21, when he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? That's not how James is intending us to understand this word. Another definition from Luonida, which is, again, a Greek lexicon, has dikio also defined this way to demonstrate that something is morally right. And the differences, the shades of the definition of these words within the Greek lexicon clearly has everything to do with context, the context in which a word is placed. kaiō also means to demonstrate that something is morally right, to show to be right, to prove to be right. And we see the Apostle Paul use it this way also later in Romans chapter 3 to prove to be right when he says, What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. Will it? He says in verse 4, May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, just as it is written that you may be, and here it is, dikio, Justified that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Dikayo here clearly has the the sense of being proven to be right, shown to be right. This is not a declarative penal justification, an imputation of righteousness, the use of dikayo here. And this is the usage that James has intended when we get to James 2.21. Was not Abraham our father justified? Was Abraham our father not proven to be right, shown to be right by works? Are you following me? It's a huge difference. Was not Abraham our father justified, Dikayo, shown to be right by his works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? So what James is showing is that Abraham's works was a vindication of his faith. It shows that his faith was genuine when he did something, when he acted out in his faith, and how he acted out in his faith was when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Again, thus validating James' point that we looked at previously from verse 18. I will show you my faith by my works. James tells us that that's exactly what Abraham has just done. The usage of Abraham and his example has proven his point. I will show you my faith by my works. He's saying this is how he's illustrating that Abraham has just shown us that's exactly what he has done. Now... The offering up of Isaac on the altar may not be the best of parenting skills. I mean, now, it might get your kids to walk in greater obedience. So, I mean, try it at your own risk, right? Don't go out and say, Pastor Averitt said we need to offer our youngest up on the altar. No. If God calls you to do that, that's between you and God. But he asked Abraham to do it. But one thing it shows is that it surely would take a genuine... Living faith to place that much trust in God, would it not? Think about it. It would. I mean, how many of us have this much faith? I'm just glad God hasn't asked me to offer up Benjamin on the altar yet. Aren't you glad, Benjamin? Now, Mikael, that'd be a little easier. I come on, Mikael, let's go. Now, just kidding. It takes a lot of faith. We see in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, and so we see here in the Hebrews passage that this was a testing of his faith from God. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offered up, has offered up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. In all hope, Abraham believed the promise of God that Isaac was the child of promise. And as such, Abraham believed against all rational thinking. And this is sometimes where we fall prey As American Christians, we're very tidy, and we have a lot of rational thinking, rationalism, right? If A is B and B is C, then A is C. We're very logical. At least most of us are. I know a few friends, maybe not so much, but that's okay. We fall prey to that kind of rational thinking. And against such thinking, he knew that he needed to even offer up his son Isaac, and truly offered him to God as a sacrifice. And he believed that God would raise him back to life in his doing that. That's the level of faith that Abraham possessed and didn't just have cognitively in his mind, he acted on it. And this is, again, why Abraham is such a great example of what it looks like to have a living, active faith Faith. That works faith that before the thought maybe even comes to mind is acting on the very truth that God has called us to Abraham knew of the unilateral covenant that God had sworn against himself to fulfill the unilateral covenant that he made with Abram Abraham was a one-way covenant God swore against himself, I will do this against my own hurt. It, had, it has nothing to do with what you do, Abraham. I am going to accomplish the things I have promised you. That's why it's a unilateral covenant. Abraham believed that, and we see in Genesis 15:6 that he believed that, and it was credited to him as righteousness, justification the free imputation of the right standing of God, the declaration of not guilty before God. Now, before any of us start to feel too down on ourselves, remember... Remember that God is the one who's faithful. God is the one who perfects the good work that he began in you. God began a good work in Abraham, and that same God is the one who takes credit for perfecting that work in Abraham. Because you may recall that Abraham is a crooked stick, striking straight licks, right? Abraham was not a perfect man. God began a good work in Abraham. And in Genesis 15, we see that he's declared righteous, He was then disobedient. If you remember following that, he was disobedient to the word. He was disobedient to the vision, and he listened instead to the voice of the wife of of his youth, and he impregnated Hagar instead. Instead of believing what God said, that your wife will have a son, he fell short in faith, didn't he? He did. And she said, well, take my handmaid, Hagar. And he, he did, resulting in Ishmael. And he raised Ishmael for 13 years before the Lord showed up again, reaffirming that his wife Sarah would be with child in the following year. And she just laughed. The promised child is finally born when we get to Genesis 21. And it seems that Isaac is in the account here in Genesis 22 to be a young lad, probably around the age of 10 or so, when Abraham, Abraham takes him to the place which God had told him to offer him up as a sacrifice. In other words, from the time of Abraham being declared righteous in Genesis 15, 6, to the time of his showing such amazing, living, active faith, there was some considerable time and failure that took place between the two. Can you find a little hope and encouragement there? I can. So be sober-minded. Don't be unrealistic with yourself or with your spouse with regard to sin. He who began the good work in them, he is the one who will perfect it. And the timetable upon which that perfection takes place may look different from one person's life to the next, depending on how we have trained our hearts to have a glad submission to the word of God. Some of us are quicker to respond, some of us not so much. But we see Abraham continuing to believe, and at this moment, God does for him exactly what he said, and then he called him to sacrifice that son up, and Abraham did it. And this is the example that James is using, that faith, living faith, genuine saving faith works, because God changes you from the inside out. Isn't that good? God is the one that changes us from the inside out, which is why James says next in verse 22, Notice what he says. You see that faith was working with his works, with Abraham's works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. So through Abraham's work, the offering of Isaac is how we are able to see, and this is a key word right here that James picks up on not just here, but also In verse 24 you see that faith was working with his works so I'm going to repeat this a few times but what do you see with well you see with your eyes I can see each of you as I look out onto the congregation with your eyes you can see me you're seeable I can see what you're doing my father-in-law is on his phone sending a text to me right now saying, preach it, son. <laughs> now he's probably got his Bible on his, his Bible app, right? But I can see. He, James, you see. This, 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 faith is something you see. You see that faith was working. The life of the individual is something you see. It's demonstrable. It's real. It's living. It's active. It's breathing. You see this with his life. With his works. And as a result of that, faith, genuine saving faith, was, as he says, perfected. And that's a a beautiful concept indeed. Perfected, this word perfected here is from this Greek word, tello. It's just defined again, to, to bring an activity to a successful finish to complete, to finish, to end, to accomplish. So when you look again at verse 22, Abraham's genuine faith was what? It was perfected. It's almost as James is saying, it's come full circle. The good work that God began in him, we see it being perfected. We see it being completed in the living out of his life. You're seeing a, the work of God in the life of the individual, as we mentioned a couple of weeks back in Philippians 2, 12, and 13. God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And his good pleasure, the meta narrative of God's good pleasure for all things is his glory. And this is why in John 15, 8, our Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. This is his fruit. And so prove to be disciples. Prove to be genuine believers. Prove that the faith that's in you is living and active. It's alive. It demonstrates it's been completed. Perfection. Isn't that good? You see that faith was working with Abraham's works, and as a result of what Abraham did, his works, genuine saving faith, Peter James is saying, is perfected. That's just a beautiful way of indicating that he who began that good work in you will complete it, perfect it, until the day of Christ Jesus. Abraham has shown us the genuineness of his faith by his works. And then in verse 23, notice what it says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says... And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Abraham's perfected faith as evidence through his life gives evidence, we see here, of two amazing realities. One, the scripture about Abraham's faith being credited freely to him in Genesis 15, 6, of the imputation of the free forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of God, that was true. It was fulfilled. It was perfected. And it was shown to be true through the ongoing progressive life change of Abraham, as we just mentioned. He wasn't a perfect man. He failed from time to time. But his life is a demonstration of God's work changing him one week, one day, one one year at a time. And secondly, Abraham's perfected faith is... This this faith of his that works to the glory of God evidences that he is truly, and I love this at the end here, a friend of God. Isn't that good? James is here suggesting that Abraham's faith with regard to genuine justification found its ultimate significance and meaning as Abraham grew in his capacity to glorify God through a life of obedience. That's what James is saying, that Abraham's faith, which was a genuine faith, a salvific faith, true justification, in the life of Abraham found its ultimate significance and meaning as Abraham grew in his capacity to glorify God through a life of obedience, the very purpose for which God saved him. James has a very theocentric view of anthropology, of man, doesn't he? God saves us. Yes, it's for our good. Yes, we enjoy the, the fruit of the Spirit, etc. But the larger story that's being told through the scriptures is that he did that for himself. That through our lives, remember Ephesians 2.10, we are his poema, his, craftsm- his craftsmanship, We as individuals are are those images in which he is crafting and making beautiful through the gospel, beautiful through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he's put us on his mantle and he's saying to all the angelic realm we see in Ephesians 3, check them out, those are my kids. And that's what amazing grace will do in the life of one who's been redeemed. (laughs) That's a... Sobering thought indeed, isn't it? Kind of wants me to take my living a little bit more seriously. How about you? To be put on display as a trophy of God's grace to all the angelic beings, to see your faith perfected as you move out in life, loving God and loving others. Wow, <laughs> that, that is indeed beautiful. And so Abraham passed the biggest faith test of his life and the angel of the Lord said to him in Genesis 22:12, "Now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me." The Proverbs tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. You can't outsmart God. You can't outrun him. You can't run, you can't hide. If you are a child of God, his hand of discipline will sniff you out wherever you go. Isn't that good? It should be good. Should keep you honest. Like, I'm over here hiding in the corner. No, he's right there. <laughs> no. I see you. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro, looking for someone whose heart is completely his. And stop. You be the one. You be the one. By the time we get to Genesis 25, so from 22, Abraham, Isaac, this massive testing of faith, You go from 22, by the time you get to 25, just three chapters later, Abraham is gone. Abraham dies. And you see the apex there of God's work being completed in him. And he uses, obviously, Abraham in a very significant way in the history of human redemption, doesn't he? I mean, he's Romans 4, he is the father of faith for all who come to Christ. Because he was a believer before he was the father of the Jewish nation. He was a believer as a Gentile and then became the father of the Jewish nation. So he he like he stands, he has a foot in both of those worlds. And he was saved by grace through faith alone, apart from works, just like all people are. Amen. Amen. And what James has been saying for the entirety of chapter two, I believe, is perhaps nowhere more plainly stated than in verse 24. Notice verse 24. He says there in 24, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Are you picking up on that theme? This is perhaps about the third time he has said a very similar statement, just maybe a little bit differently, but he says it, I believe, very succinctly and very powerfully here. And again, this verse, I believe, represents... In essence, the heart of James' teaching about justification in chapter two—justification, not in the forensic justification, but justification in the vindication that the faith that you have is genuinely a saving faith, is genuinely a salvific faith. And again, as we made mention just a bit ago, this is the the act of acquitting, the act of saying not guilty. James is saying, you see that a man is justified. You see that he is justified. You see that a person has been declared not guilty, not guilty by works. He's not saying this is how you get saved, but again, he says this is what you see. You see a man's life, and by what they do, you know that, What God did is a living act of faith, as was Abraham's, the beautiful illustration that he just laid out before us, and he's saying, so that kind of true saving faith is not alone, not alone, justified by works and not by faith alone. And this statement right here, not by faith alone, it's just, this is just what I would call lip service. There's many a person, as as we saw Luther say, they're constantly saying, faith and works, and they talk a lot, he said, right? No, faith is this, and works is this, faith is this, and works is this. But you never see the life, he said. Luther called them unbelievers. I think we sometimes refer to them as just nominal Christians, Christians in name only. And the good part of this, and what I would encourage you to think about, is that... This is something that is seeable. Listen, your life is on display. All lives bear fruit. You've heard the old adage before, you know, probably from your grandparents and your parents or great grandparents. It's been around forever. I think, I think in the Garden of Eden, it was probably stated that actions speak louder than words. Right? I mean, it's, I don't know, it's been around forever, and that's that's truism in the spiritual realm. Your actions will speak louder than words. So you can tell me all day long, that's what James has been saying, you can tell me all day long you've got faith. Show me your faith without works, he said. Remember, 2.18? Show me. Prove to me that you have genuine saving faith apart from works. Go ahead. And all you're left with is the lip. No, I, I walked an aisle, I repeated a prayer after the pastor and they baptized me. All you got is the lip. Did that show anything? No, it told Everything. And James' entire, the thrust of what he's been saying is don't tell me, show me. I showed you Abraham. I've been telling you this. Faith without works, it's useless because genuine saving faith produces a root of justification and what we're talking about here is the fruit. If you have no fruit in keeping with repentance, your roots needs to be questioned. That's what James is clearly articulating. And he has proven this by the life of Abraham. Now, we could stop right here because we have a lot of good things just from the life of Abraham to illustrate this, but James doesn't stop, does he? I mean, he could have just ended this right here, jumped into verse chapter 3, verse 1, Let not many of you be teachers, my brethren, knowing as such you will incur a stricter judgment. He could have jumped right into that, but he doesn't. He leaves us with one more example, and he does it very quickly with one verse. Notice, How he does this. In verse 25, he goes into Rahab. He says, "In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way?" It's almost as if Abraham is—excuse me—that James is wanting to drive one last nail into this coffin to settle the issue. But it also seems that he does so with a very stri- in a very strategic way with a very strategic move. It's one thing to articulate and to demonstrate that with the great patriarch Abraham. But then to turn around and do it with a gentile woman who's a prostitute. It's a completely different thing. Now perhaps One of the main reasons he does this, obviously, is for you and I, 2,000 years later, reading this letter to indicate to us that it doesn't matter if you're the great patriarch Abraham or you're this woman Jezebel, you're the harlot Rahab over here. It doesn't matter. Guess what? Genuine saving faith, he's going to say, looks exactly the same in both lives. Why? Because Abraham didn't save himself. Rahab didn't save herself. God saved them. And so genuine saving faith is going to have a certain look, whether you're the father Abraham or you're Rahab. Isn't that good? You can say, well, but, you know, I, you know, I grew up in the, in, the, in the Rahab zone over here at the red light district, and so, you know, my life, you know, it's not as... No, no, no. He who began that good work and you will perfect it from Abraham to Rahab. That's one of the significant things. But I also believe, remember when we were talking about partiality? Partiality is sin. The Gentile believers to whom, primarily to whom James is writing in the diaspora, it's probably kindly adding Rahab here as a reminder for those Jewish believers that what God is up to and that what God is doing is also in the, in the work of saving Gentile women prostitutes. And so don't say to them, well, sit down here at the footstool. or You know, there's a place way back there at the back door. Maybe you can find a place back there. He's indicating that the foot of the cross is level, whether you're the great patriarch or you're Rahab. In the same way, notice, 25, in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot. He doesn't supply nearly the amount of content that he did with Abraham, but he gives us this. In the same way, meaning in the same way that God did things with Abraham, he also did so with Rahab the harlot. In the same way, Rahab's faith looked a particular way. Now, Rahab's story, as told in Joshua 2, we know that she was an innkeeper in Jericho, the, the spies that went sent, got sent into the land, she, she accepted them. We know from, we know from Joshua 2.11, she says to them, when we heard of it, our hearts melted. And so the hearing of it, remember what the hearing of it is when we heard it? When we heard how your God decimated the land of Egypt and demolished all their gods and destroyed their people and killed the firstborn of every family in the land. When we heard of that our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, the people of God. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven. Are you seeing her profession here? (laughs) She's making a profession. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven, above and on earth, beneath. Now, that doesn't look like repeating a prayer after a pastor, does it? I want you to come up today and repeat after me. The Lord your God, he is God in heaven, above and on earth, beneath. Amen. That's not typically what you hear about or say. We kind of have these little isms where we're always this about, you know, asking Jesus into the heart. Their hearts melted. There was a recognition that Rahab demonstrates here And this Yahweh, your God, he's the only true and living God. We heard about what he did to the gods of Egypt and how they could not stand before him. And while it's awesome and amazing that she would say such things, right? What's even more beautifully amazing is that she acted on it. Matthew 7, Jesus he who hears my words and acts on them is he who is compared to the wise person who built their house upon a rock. James 1 22. Don't be professional hearers of the word who look into the word and see what it says and then move away from it and immediately forget what you've seen. She acted upon the word. She demonstrated through her life, just as Abraham did, that faith works. She didn't have a lot of time to sit around and contemplate the consequences that might happen to her life if she were to hide the spies, tell her people, hey, you need to go check out. They went that way. Now you guys go this way. She didn't have a lot of time to kind of think through and process through that, but the fear of the Lord fell upon her heart, and she revered the Lord. And she acted that's what faith does she demonstrated that so again no matter who you are no matter what your background is when god truly saves you in the same way your faith too will work the works of god for the glory of god alone amen and then james drives his last nail for just as the body without the spirit is dead so also Faith without works is dead. I don't think anybody is arguing that when they come upon a body that has no life in it, that the spirit has departed the body, they're not, they're not arguing the case that that body without the spirit is dead. They say, he's dead, or she's dead. He's not there. Now there are those who... <laughs> want to stretch the context of this and say yeah but prior to being dead they once were alive and so see they really were alive and then they died i don't have time to go into that mess the point that james is making the comparison so also is that when you see a dead body you know it's dead and when you see a faith without works what can you know for certain it's dead It wasn't once alive and died, no, it was dead. It never was alive in the beginning. That's the the simple connection that he's trying to make. He's not trying to make an analogy to every aspect of the human life in living and dying. Just when you see a dead body, it's dead. There's no life. When you see a faith without works, it's dead. There's no life. No saving life. And that's what James is clearly articulating. This chapter 2 is a very, it's caused a lot of strife uh, within the body of Christ, hasn't it? And you know, when you walk through it as we have over the last several weeks, and you just look at it, and you look at the words, and you look at the context, and you look at the meaning, it's clear that James is sending a shot across the bow to the church. He's not going to make the assumption that every single person to whom he was writing, brothers dispersed abroad, greetings, he's not making the assumption that every single one of them, just because he sent it to them, that they were all saved. He already said in chapter 1, look into the mirror of Scripture, what do you see? You get through the end of chapter 2, you ought to be asking yourself, do I see truly signs Of spiritual life in me. Do I love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbor as myself? And what does that look like? Not just, oh yeah, I do, but what does that look like? It's gonna look like something. James has illustrated it for us. It looks like something. I want us all to leave here this morning kind of asking ourselves those penetrating questions. When I look in the mirror what do I see? Do I see genuine signs of life? When I see a need before I even calculate all that, am I moving? Do I see God at work in me to willing to work for his good pleasure? Do I find within my heart a desire that says, I want my life to be lived, the short little time I have on this earth, for the glory of his great name? Are you feeling that within your bosom? Maybe not every day. Was Abraham a crooked stick? Yeah. I'm not saying every single day. But how your heart and your soul is tuned is to his great name. And when we sin, we repent. And we get back to life. We don't avoid our assembling together as is the habit of some because God calls us to be together as the body of Christ, as the church, to meet with God's people and to love them well. And then to move out as the church scatters and to love our neighbor as ourself. I want to encourage and challenge each of us to look at ourselves very clearly this morning as best we can because James has left it very clear. Faith without works. No evidence of, of signs of life. And I'm not talking about just the past week. Were you saved 15 years ago? Were you saved 20 years ago? Take a glance. What do you see? I would hate anybody to be the person in Matthew 7 when he says, depart from me, I didn't know you. And if you need more information today about what it looks like to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, I'm right down here after service. I'm right up there. Pastor Matt, he looks just like this. Brother Royce, he looks just like that. You see him? Go find us. Where's Nathan? Another elder right back there. Hunt us down. Do not leave today. We, this is, because this is life. He is our life. To whom else shall we go? He has the words of life. We will, I will spend the rest of the day with you. I'll give you everything I got to walk you through, to show you what it looks like to come to Christ, to be a disciple of Christ, to be made a disciple of Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we exist, is to make disciples. And if you sense in your heart today that you need to do that, you need to know the Lord. Don't leave today with, without, well, I'll do it next time. Well, no, listen, today's the day of salvation. Amen? Today. Choose you this day whom you will serve. And make it Yahweh the Lord. Let's pray.